Now, I have been distressed very greatly uh, throughout the morning hours in the realization that a subject that I think of immense consequence for every conference on revival has only been spoken of in passing, not without urgency, but nonetheless only in passing the subject of repentance. And I have been wanting very, very much uh, to speak uh, with care on that subject. And yet, as I prayed for weeks in advance, uh, I felt it appropriate for me to deal with the matter uh, that our brother has just indicated. And uh, I'm going to stick with the announced subject, but I hope somebody somewhere before we're through on Saturday will give us a strong biblical word on the subject of repentance. Now, when it was my privilege to speak yesterday morning, I spoke to you about the heart cry for revival that earth needs. And I believe that the cry for revival that's needed is a cry of genuine faith. Faith based on the unfulfilled promises of God. So many of the places where I go, people are praying for revival, not with faith, but with hope. It's probably too late. No real reason to think it will happen, but it would be wonderful if revival were to occur. And I believe we need to move from that vague, uncertain area of hope uh, into a genuine confidence in the God of the Bible uh, to bring mighty revival. A number of years ago, quite a few indeed, in one of the Oxford Association conferences, it was suggested by some of the brethren that we ought to devote an evening and a night to prayer. And uh, so uh, a group of men gathered in an upper room at Regent's Park College, uh, Oxford University, and uh, we really got into the spirit of prayer for revival. It was a lovely time. I, I was enjoying myself immensely. It was one of those occasions in which it seemed that uh, the roof had uh, lifted off the room and heaven itself had come down. Uh, we were a variety of men, uh, myself, an old-fashioned and probably restrained congregationalist. But there were Nazarenes among us and Pentecostals of various stripes and Baptist and Presbyterian. And uh, some were uh, more restrained like me, but others were loose uh, and uh, felt the freedom of really crying unto the Lord. It was a lovely, lovely time. Uh, men uh, were praying uh, biblical prayers like rend the heavens and come down. And uh, I was just participating full-heartedly when suddenly these arresting words came to me. 
a wicked and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it. And I just tried to shrug off those words, but I couldn't seem to rid myself of them. I lost track of the prayer meeting. I was agitated in my spirit, and in time I said, Lord, why did you trouble me with that? But then I realized that that's exactly what we were doing. We were asking for some sign, some certain evidence that God was going to come in great power. And I was led to the realization that I needed personally to repent of that. And uh, by God's grace, I did. And then I tried to get back into the spirit of the prayer meeting and uh, somehow couldn't seem to make contact again with the others. And while I was wrestling and striving to get into the spirit of the meeting, uh, another text uh, appeared uh, in my mind and heart. If thou shalt say to this mountain, be thou removed, and cast into the sea, and doubt not in thine heart, it, it shall be done. And I said, O oh Lord, what mountain? And it occurred to me, there we were in Oxford, England, and in England you have the huge mountain of dead work. Religion with all of its trappings and uh, so often without any real heart. And then I thought as well of the vast mountain of unbelief. All around us, unbelief. And then I thought of the mountain of reprobate action, evil, vile, sinful deeds. And there seemed to be impressed upon my mind this question, do you believe that I will move these mountains? I said, oh, Lord, I know you can. But that wasn't the question I was asked. Do you believe I will? And after struggling inwardly, I, I came to the point where I said, Lord, there is no distance anywhere in the United Kingdom uh, from where you are to the sea. Yes, I believe you will move these mountains into the sea. But then the question seemed to impress itself upon me. But what about where you live? And I thought, Lord, it's a long ways from Chicago to the ocean. And it is. But there the question was, do you believe that I will move these mountains 
in Chicago and indeed in America. And after some soul struggle, I said, yes, Lord, I do believe. And I did. And I do. Do you? Earth desperately needs the prayer of faith that God will move the mountains and come in mighty power among us and all of God's people. Now in what I was saying about the pessimism that seems to grip such a major portion of the church and of the absolute conviction that the promises of God in Psalm 2 and Romans 11 and an abundance of other promises that remain unfulfilled. We need to enter in believingly. And then it occurred to me that uh, had I had more time yesterday, I would have said a word about... Uh, that basic instruction that our Lord gave his people uh, in which they were to be perpetually involved between his first coming and his second coming, occupy until I come. And I wanted to say to you that uh, this occupying until he comes must surely include the heart burden for revival and the giving of ourselves unceasingly to prayer and to whatever labor is appropriate to accompany our prayers. One of the most critical questions we need to deal with is having prayed for revival, what else is there that is legitimate to do? Much of the church is engaged in illegitimate activity. But what else is there that is legitimate to do? I won't seek to answer that question this morning, but it's one you need to wrestle through. As our brother Al was speaking yesterday morning on the subject of tears, I was tracking with him ever so closely and was moved and stirred and grateful for the message he brought us. But as he was speaking, I was thinking of the book of Judges and the pattern that is so clear in the Judges. I wonder how many of you understand that in the book of Judges, there is a pattern that is repeated not less than seven times. The people of God begin in right relationship with God, but then they sin and do not repent. And therefore, the righteous God brings them under a remedial judgment. And for some time, they pay no attention to that remedial judgment. But then the judgment becomes so heavy so immensely difficult to bear, so gross that eventually they began to cry unto the Lord. 
And when that cry is from the very bottom of their hearts, when they can no longer live under the judgment of God, God steps in and raises up a judge deliverer and brings them back into right relationship with God. And every time I think of that pattern so frequently displayed in the judges, I'm reminded of the fact that we in the Western world have once known right relationship with God, but have sinned and have not yet repented. Surely not corporately. And therefore we are under the righteous judgment of God. And as Brother uh, uh, Hinson, who spoke to the pastors yesterday afternoon, spelled it out so clearly, it's not that we are in danger of judgment. We are now and have long been under the judgment of God. And every wise man knows that a remedial judgment left unheeded in the course of God's time becomes a final judgment. But in the face of that truth, the church goes merrily on its way, disregarding that sober fact. Now our Bibles clearly teach that to whom much is given, much is required. And what we've been given in comparison with what they were given in the book of Judges is indeed vast. But in the book of Judges, they had the wisdom to cry unto God as a corporate body. And we're still lacking that wisdom. And if indeed God does turn the remedial judgment into a final judgment, we'll have no grounds of protest. What we'll be forced to do is to say, isn't it amazing that he spared us so long and that he extended so graciously the remedial judgment? But now... My concern this morning is to speak in terms of the heart cry for revival that heaven awaits. And I would like to ask you to join me in a reading from the book of Isaiah at chapter 62. The book of Isaiah, chapter 62. Let me begin reading at verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all the kings thy glory. 
and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be merry. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon the walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silent, and give him no rest till he establish, until he make for Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. And the sons of the strangers shall not drink thy wine for which thou hast labored, but they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed Unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out a city not forsaken. What a magnificent chapter. It would take a long time to give any kind of a thorough treatment to this chapter. I cannot possibly do so now. Instead, let me draw your attention to these two verses that I read again, verses 6 and 7. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never 
hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silent and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. May I ask you, how disturbing have your prayers been to the Lord? Does he find it impossible to get rest because you are ever before the throne clamoring, pleading, interceding, begging, crying to him for mercy? For indeed, and I know that we really can speak literally as I'm doing. I'm only speaking figuratively. We know the Lord does not rest, but we have the passage in front of us. Do not give him rest day or night. So in the spirit of the words that are in the text itself, is the Lord kept agitated? Is he kept aroused? Are his affections constantly bombarded by your prayer? Now, I've been around long enough to be deeply distressed by what happens frequently in conferences like this. We do get aroused. Many, maybe even a high percentage, are thoroughly moved and stirred. But how long will the moving last? How long will the stirring still be taking place? It has been so distressful to me personally to see people thoroughly aroused and then to meet them five years later and to realize they lost the impact they no longer feel the power and the constraint. They've given God a great deal of rest on this matter. And surely the heart cry for revival that heaven awaits is the heart cry that gives God no rest day nor night. While we will not take time to read the parables of importunity recorded in Luke chapters 11 and in Luke chapter 18, both of them indeed occupying the first eight verses of the chapter, they surely fit exactly into this teaching here in Isaiah 62, don't give the Lord any rest, not day, not night. Indeed, don't give yourself any rest on this issue. Don't ever be silent on this matter. If you're silent yourself, you will not be keeping before the Lord this urgent issue of his coming among us in great power. And in those parables of importunity, you know that at the very heart of the teaching is the response that is made 
because of the conviction there will be no rest until I answer what it is that I'm being pressed for. It's one thing to cry unto God for a revival, but it's another thing to keep crying day after day, week after week, year after year when necessary. Some of the great men of the church in this century gave their lives in a heart cry for revival. Men like J. Edwin Orr, of whom Ron spoke. Men like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of London. Some say, well, they died disappointed. I don't believe it for one moment. They died in conviction that although God did not answer their prayer fully in their lifetime, it was indeed a prayer of faith. And in God's own time, a great awakening will come. But how many here this morning will be disturbing the Lord on this subject 20 years from now? A young man approached me some time ago, and he said, Mr. Roberts, you know I've been in the prayer meeting on Friday mornings for a year now, and I'm wondering what to do. I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, I've prayed with you men for a year, and nothing has happened. I'm wondering what to do. I said to him, will you be praying for revival a year from now? Well, he said, that's not fair. I, I told you, I don't know what to do. I've prayed for a year, and nothing has happened. I, I don't know what to do. I said, young man, you have to face the fact that one of the great differences between you and God is God knows what you'll be doing a year from now. And if God knows you will not be praying for revival a year from now, why should he have paid any attention at all to your prayers over the last year? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not that man think he will get anything from the Lord. Give the Lord no rest day or night until the urgent petition has been responded to with the very heart cry. Now, I believe that in order to press on praying year after year, there are certain things that are essential. People say to me, how long have you been traveling, preaching on revival? And I say, a long time. How long? Well, half a century. Don't you get discouraged? What is there to be discouraged about? I've been doing what I was asked to do. I wasn't asked to bring revival. I was asked to plead with the people to repent and seek the face of God. I, I haven't done it perfectly. I, 
I sometimes say, Lord, if you'd let me run through life again, I think I could do a better job the second time. But I've done what I could. I don't have any grounds for discouragement. Someone might wonder, well, why? Well, we've had one prayer meeting in Wheaton, Illinois, that's been running for well over 20 years. Have we seen revival in Wheaton, Illinois? Well, thank God we saw a stirring in the college about four years ago, but no, we haven't seen any revival in the city yet. But have I any grounds for discouragement? No, let me tell you that the true heart cry for revival that heaven awaits is a heart cry that is energized by the known passions of the heart of God. Did you catch what I said? The heart cry heaven awaits is the heart cry that is energized by the known passions of God. Now, if all I had to work on were my own passions, I would get discouraged. In fact, I think I would sit down now and not bother to finish the sermon. And as soon as convenient, I would say to my wife, let's go over to our room, pack our stuff, and go home. But I'm not energized by my own passions. I'm energized by known passions in the heart of God. I know, for instance, that God has the perpetual passion for the holiness of his people. And I know God's passion is not being rewarded today. I know that the church has come a long ways away from holiness. I remember the words that Peter spoke in his first epistle, chapter 1, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. That's a mouthful right there, isn't it? Why is the church so given over to lust? Well, the answer is more than plain. The church is still in its natural ignorance in many, many instances. But then Peter goes on to say, but like the Holy One who called you, be ye holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a passion in the heart of God for holiness of his people. That presents powerful reason to pray for revival. The church is unholy but the God of the church is holy. Therefore, I must pray for that which is necessary to make the church holy. For God's passion to keep covenant. We all know that our God is a covenant-keeping God. 
We, we know that God said uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is the faithful God who keeps covenant and his loving kindnesses to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. But then it adds, and this we admit to our sorrow, he also repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. But God has a passion for his own covenant to keep it. And I believe that God has made a covenant with his people not to let them go. And even though one generation may perish or another, God is still determined. God is set. God is faithful to the covenant that he's made with those who believe. And when I remind myself of the covenant of God as one of the passions in God's heart, it stirs me up to press on even further in the yearning for and in the prayer for revival. I'm also certain that God, once he extends his love, never extends it in a temporary fashion. But that the love of God is described in Jeremiah 31, 3, is an everlasting love. And we find added to that bold statement, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. And I believe that one of the acts of God's loving kindness is when he brings a nation of churches under remedial judgment. If God were tired of America, he could have dropped us into the sea 20 years ago. But instead, he visited us with the remedial judgments of spiritual drunkenness, Jeremiah 13, and the remedial judgment of the withdrawal of his manifest presence. And were we wiser, were we better? The realization of God's passion in drawing us with his loving kindness in remedial judgment would have brought us straight back. But somehow the church has an uncanny ability to avoid the serious consideration of the facts as they stand. The known passion of God's everlasting love, I've said, is a tremendous motive to give God no rest day or night until he comes in a glorious visitation. I mentioned in my introductory words the desire in my own heart to have a word on repentance spoken yet this week. 
I read to you from 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow or slack about his promises, as some men count slackness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The passion of God toward this incredibly urgent subject of repentance ought to drive us and drive us and drive us perpetually to giving God no rest until our world is visited with the great and the gracious gift of repentance. Or let me speak in terms of God's passion for intimate nearness. I don't think anyone would dare to say that God is lonely. What a foolish thing to say concerning the God who is altogether sufficient in and of himself. But even though we would not dare to describe God as lonely, we must surely realize that God has a passion for intimate nearness. He loves to have those who draw near to him. He delights when we draw near to him to himself draw near to us. James 4 verse 8 spells this out so very clearly. I am so often moved over the expression that I find in the New American Translation in Psalm 73 verse 28. The nearness of God is my and I have been observing now for some years that the sweetest moment, the most precious hours, the most delightful days, the glorious weeks and months are those periods of time when God has allowed himself to draw near to me. When the remedial judgment of the withdrawal of his manifest presence is suspended and he draws near. And everyone who has any sense of God's longing for the intimate nearness of his people is pushed powerfully forward in the whole matter of giving God no rest day nor night. And then I mention as well God's obvious known passion for a bride that is appropriate. I was thinking yesterday, if I were a single young man as I was at one time, and I was longing for a bride, would I long for a bride that looked like today's church. No, I, I couldn't imagine marrying a bride so soiled, so spotted, so stained, so marred. Our father has an immense passion that his son should have a bride without spot and without blemish. 
without wrinkle, and without blame. This is expressed so powerfully in Ephesians 5. And just thinking about what our Lord craves in his bride ought to drive us perpetually onward in giving God no rest day nor night. And then picking up again on what I was speaking of yesterday, God's passion that the world might know and love him surely is powerful motivation for us to be constantly before the throne of grace, disturbing God, agitating in his presence, pleading that he will indeed make disciples through us of all the nations that there will be multitudes from every portion of the earth who are brought to submission to the Son and who are brought into the kingdom of God and who are discipled into the life of faith. Have these known passions of God been stirring you up repeatedly? And what if a few weeks or months after this conference, you start to cool down again. Will these known passions of God arouse you thoroughly and bring you back to that point where God knows no rest day or night because you are perpetually before him pleading for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What a shame it would be if indeed in some weeks or months you gave God a season of rest. Do you not understand that the heart cry that God awaits is the cry of his church that will not let him go until he blesses? And I speak candidly to you in saying, I don't see any evidence that heaven is being disturbed by the prayer of the church yet. Oh, I know I've given God an occasion of discomfort by my agitating, by my prayer, but I also know he's had plenty of time to sleep. Not that he does, but plenty of time to sleep as far as my own personal life is concerned. But let me turn a corner and introduce a second issue here in terms of the heart cry that gives God no rest. It must be a heart cry that cannot be robbed of its purpose. As I've said, it's a heart cry that is perpetually made alive by the known passions of the heart of God. But now I say it's a heart cry that is never robbed of its purpose. Sin always robs the heart cry of its purpose. Nobody who commits sin and allows that sin to linger in their life is going to disturb the rest of God on this matter. 
Every time you sin, you must come to immediate repentance, else God will recognize that no matter how fervently you have cried uh, over uh, recent hours or even weeks or months, you are not willing to keep on crying because you are willing to allow some sin place in your life. It's often occurred to me how easily sin enters the Christian heart. And I have a, a number of times illustrated this problem by asking people if they've ever ridden on a New York subway. You think of yourself now as riding on one of those long subway cars with seats along either side under the windows and straps overhead that people are hanging on to. You mount to the car. You find the last seat in the car and you sit yourself down with a measure of comfort and the train speeds on to the next station. But when it stops again, you observe that one of those great hulking New York woman, uh, women has gotten on the car and she has spotted that tiny space between you and the person on your left. And you say to yourself, oh no, not this. And there she comes right for that spot, uh, less than an inch wide, and she plops herself down. And with a motion or two like this, she's got all the room she wants. And then the car speeds on to the next stop. And at the next stop, it's one of those swarthy New York men who sees that by now there's a quarter of an inch of space between you and the person on your right, and they plop themselves down there. That's the nature of backsliding. You leave the tiny crevice in your life unfilled by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the glorious working power of the Holy Spirit, and sin spots that space and plops itself down there. And if you let it remain soon, that single sin is accompanied by a multitude of sins. There's no way you can observe the prayer of importunity that gives God no rest day nor night if you allow sin to find its place in your life. A second matter that I would mention under the heading of those things that rob the heart cry of its true purpose is the inability that many seem to have of standing alone. As a young man still in college, I was frequently engaged in revival meetings so-called, night after night when I should have been in my room studying, I was out preaching. And uh, on one occasion, a couple of college friends asked if I would join them in a spiritual effort in one of the churches not far off, one what was the student pastor, the other was a lovely musician, and they said, will you come and preach 
in an eight-day meeting. And I delighted to say yes. We traveled out to the city of Spokane a few miles, one of these rural areas. Night after night I preached, and by about the third or fourth night, the place was jammed with people. There were multitudes standing outside looking in the windows and through the doorway. And that night some coyotes began howling in the distance. And somehow a reporter from the great newspaper in Spokane was there and wrote an article in the newspaper about this amazing stirring that was going on in this small community under the leadership of these college students. We reached an agreement between ourselves. The evidence seemed overwhelming that God was at work and that there was the prospect of a mighty outpouring. And so we agreed to meet together on the college campus following the Friday evening meeting to give ourselves, we three, to a night of prayer. And so we met and we prayed with great fervor for an hour or two. And then one of the brothers interrupted the prayer and he said, my, my, my wife, he was the only married one of the three of us, my wife, he said, will be worried. I, I, I better go home. And off he went. And so the two that remained tried to get back into the spirit of prayer. And after a little bit, the second fellow said, well, after all, we are students. And our major calling is uh, in connection with our studies. I, I, I don't think we really want revival. I mean, how, how could we be leading a great revival and still be students? I, I think I'll go home. And off he went. And there I remained. Well, Lord, what should I do? Well, the answer was obvious. Stick by your commitment. Pray. So I struggled manfully onward for a little while. And then I thought, oh, Lord, nothing's going to happen. The two of them have forsaken me. So I folded up my Bible and went to my room. Well, foolishly, we allowed the continuation of the meeting to be announced. But by Tuesday night, it was dead. And I was so agitated. Oh, shame on those two. I mean, imagine the gall of committing ourselves to a night of prayer and then slipping away. Shame on them. And I rejoice to be agitated by their unfaithfulness. But after a while, it dawned on me that I wasn't called to be a leaner. I was called to stand alone. And that the real problem lay not with those two brothers who forsook me, but in this brother who forsook the Lord. And I 
began then to learn a very powerful lesson. I've never been given assurance that I'm going to give God no rest day or night in company with a multitude of others. If God blesses me with others, well and good. But if I'm alone, if there is no one else who is willing to press on in this urgent matter of prayer, I still better stick by my calling. I ask you, have you got what it takes to press on alone without any regard whether anybody else stands with you or not? I suffered for three or four years from that failure. Not that I didn't keep active, but I did not again for over three years see another deep stirring of the Spirit of God. It took me a long time to recover from that failure to stand alone. Oh, I plead with you, set your heart on giving God no rest day or night. And don't concern yourself with what others do or don't do. By God's grace, I pressed on with a measure of faithfulness for a long time. Then I was approaching my 65th birthday. And my wife kept bothering me on the subject of Social Security. She kept saying to me, you've got to go before your 65th birthday and see the Social Security people. No, I don't. I'm not retiring. I don't have to waste a moment on that. But she somehow thought I had to. And finally, she said to me, well, I'm going to make the appointment. No, I said, leave it alone. I'm making the appointment. So she made the appointment. And she said, to be sure you get there, I'm going with you. So we went. And the lady was so kind and helpful. And uh, she said, now, I've gathered your income tax records. And she had them in front of her. She said, I've looked them over. She said, Mr. Roberts, you need to receive Social Security benefits. No, I said, I have, I have no interest. I'm not retiring. She said, with an income like yours, you need Social Security benefits. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to retire. She said, you don't have to retire. You will be limited in your income, but you don't have any problem there because you obviously are limited already. She said, I'm going to sign you up. And she went ahead and signed me up. A day or two later, I was scheduled to speak to some of the staff at Life Action up in Buchanan, Michigan. Had to leave early in the morning to arrive at the appointed time. And all the way on the drive up to Buchanan, I was saying to myself, you're too old for this. Doesn't make sense that an old man like you should be rising 
early in the morning and driving off like this to an appointment. It's crazy. You, you, you might as well face it now. You're all done. So I got there. My dear wife went along with me to see that I got there. <laughs> the staff gathered and I tried to speak to him. I couldn't remember what it was I had planned to say. And just kind of stumbled along. And then later in the day, they, they had set aside time for questions and answers. And uh, uh, somebody would ask a question, and I, I would say, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that question. Would you repeat it again? So they'd repeat, I'm sorry, I, 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 I missed something. Uh, would, you, would you explain it further? And all the way home that night, I said, you were sure you were too old to keep on with this work, and you've proved it all day long. Now, just admit it. Just quit. And about three days later, I awoke in the morning at my usual hour, and it dawned on me, having had a 65th birthday didn't mean a thing. I had been under attack by the evil one and was foolish enough to give in to it. My calling was to give God no rest day or night until he visited us in gracious power and I allowed a sense of age to interfere. Maybe someone here has reached that point where they've said, I I've served my term. I've done what I could. I I I'm do a rest now. Well, you give yourself a rest and you give God a rest. Don't do it. Don't do it. Even when you're ill, you can keep the Lord troubled on this matter. But I find something else that is robbing many. Indeed, I fear a high percentage of the church from giving God no rest, and that's their inability to read the times and to feel with the heart of God what he feels. I'm so grieved and troubled by the vast masses in the church that do not have any Visible perception of all where we're at. I said to someone this morning that uh, one of the practices that I frequently engage in when addressing a group of ministers is to ask the question, how many of you pastor churches where the attendance is in excess of a thousand? And all the times I've asked the question, only once was there a pastor of a church of any size. I know there are exceptions, but by and large, those that attend conferences like this are the pastors of the little churches, the struggling churches. Someone told us yesterday about the great danger of seeing success and then puffing your pride up to the point 
where you cease to seek God. I fear that much of the church is unable to feel what God feels today because they've been overwhelmed with their own pride of success. Don't let this rob you of the passion that it takes to give God no rest day nor night. And let me add as my sixth point under this heading that a lack of the fear of God has enabled many not to disturb the Lord. I don't believe anyone is going to be faithful in holding before the Lord their importunate prayer who is not living under the fear of the Lord. And it's seldom these days that you see those who even know what the fear of the Lord entails, let alone walk in it. And then I would finish this section by saying that another great thief of the passion that keeps pressing the heart of God is the timidity, the lack of boldness that characterizes so much of the praying today. I'm often moved by the example of Moses in Exodus 32. You remember when they built the golden calf. God and Moses were on the mountain. And God said to Moses, get out of the way. Moses, I'm going to go down there and utterly destroy those people. But Moses got in the face of God and he said, nothing doing. You have got to stop and think, Lord, if you utterly destroy the people, what will the Egyptians say? Why, they'll say, God brought these people out of Egypt into the wilderness only to destroy them. A little while later, what kind of a God would do a thing like this? And by the way, Lord, said Moses, don't you forget the promises that you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I remind you that while Moses was in the face of God giving him no rest, Moses didn't even know what God was agitated about. For as I said, God and Moses were on the mountain. God was on the mountain, but he was also on the plain. But Moses was only on the mountain. When Moses came down from the mountain, he saw and he heard the licentious activity of the people. Then his passions were thoroughly aroused. And I say to you, nobody feels what God feels who has not seen what God sees. And oh, the holy boldness that is needed is a holy boldness by viewing the world through the eyes of our Creator and joining Him heart to heart in holy passion. But let me move to my third point. There are certain factors 
that make this heart cry for revival that gives God no rest. All the more powerful. First, I mention a desperate hunger and thirst for righteousness. I have not time to develop this, but if you have not understood the Beatitudes, if you have not seen that in the Beatitudes there are three specific things that lead up to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You owe it to your soul to go back to the Beatitudes and to see how urgent it is that one become poor in spirit, that they be utterly emptied in the upward look, and then that one mourn inwardly and personally over their own sin and failure before God and therefore become emptied inwardly and then that they stand in front of their world in the spirit of meekness admitting to their world what they've already admitted to God in themselves and thus they are emptied upwardly and inwardly and outwardly and those are the only three dimensions in which we exist and when we are emptied in those three dimensions we can do nothing other than hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're content to hunger and thirst for anything less than righteousness, you won't be successful in giving God no rest day and night. And then I mention, secondly, that an urgent part of importunate prayer for revival is deep, heartfelt longings for the manifest presence of God. So many silly people among us absurdly suppose that God's presence is as well known today as any time in history. They know nothing of the comings and goings of God. But when you understand the principles that separate the essential presence from the manifest presence and from the cultivated presence of God, then you begin to get a heart longing for God to draw near, for God to manifest his presence. And then third, I would mention to you that part and parcel of this giving God no rest day or night is the sense of shame for sin. It begins obviously with a sense of shame over our own sin, but as our dear brother pointed out in the first session this morning, in the case of Nehemiah, his weeping, his heart cry was not solely over his own sin. He felt a sense of shame over the sin of the people, over their neglect, over the tragic decay of the city of God. And over and over, for instance, in the book of Daniel and in an abundance of other places, the overwhelming sense of shame because of the sin of the people drove men to importunate prayer. 
And then I hardly need to mention, it's been singled out and well spoken of this week already, a sense of the urgency for God's glory. And what else, what else is important in prayer for revival beyond the sense of the glory of God? Is that not the overwhelming motivation for this kind of prayer? And is God receiving today the glory to his name? No, we're in a situation uh, like we find in the case of Moses and Aaron at the end of their lives when God said, speak to the rock. And in anger, Moses took the rod and whacked the rock. And God said to him, because you did not maintain my holiness before the people, because you did not carry my glory aright in your own hands, go up on the mountain and lie down and die. The glory of God is the great incentive to the most urgent kind of praying and in giving God no rest day nor night. And then I'm touched regularly by the realization that my heart must be perpetually broken for others and especially the helpless. We have the unusual circumstance of having our two children involved with us in our ministry. And uh, the other other unusual circumstance of all living together in the same building. We each have our own quarters, but there we all are together day and night. And what that means is when we're so weary we can't keep on with our work, we slip away upstairs to our apartment, but we leave the door open, and invariably, in a few minutes, one of the little ones is there. And so day and night when we're home, we have the helpless little ones at hand. The children who cannot pray for themselves, who don't have any idea of the terrible issue of sin, who, who know nothing of the passions of the heart of God. If their grandmother and their grandfather, if their own mother and their own father do not intercede for them, do not give God no rest day or night. What's going to happen to the little ones? Perhaps something similar to what happened to this. They'll fall. And it isn't only the little ones who can't pray for themselves, but all around us, Lost sinners who will not and cannot pray for themselves. And it's up to us to give God no rest day or night on their behalf. Well, let me mention just two more things and then I'm done. I alluded to it already, but let me speak of it again. 
because there are literally millions of Americans who will not torment God with their urgent prayer. We're going to have to pray on their behalf as well. I want to thank the Lord publicly that he doesn't wait for the whole church to cry unto him. He still works through the remnant. And I'm believing there are enough people in the room right now to so disturb God on this immensely significant issue that his heart is stirred to move and act on the behalf of all those who cannot and will not act for themselves. And finally, I believe that when we set our hearts to give God no rest until he come in great reviving power, we need to have formulated in our own hearts the nature of the revival for which we plead. There isn't time to develop this. I should be happy to explain it to any that don't understand it at some more leisurely moment. But I learned by God's grace long ago not to pray in generalities, not merely to ask God for revival, but to ask God for a word-centered revival, a revival where the word of God is right at the middle where there is great and profound and Holy Spirit-enabled preaching, the difference between a revival of experiences and a revival of God-centered ministry is so vast that it would be a tragedy indeed to be content with a revival that stirred people up inwardly but left them in their ignorance when we had the stirring at Wheaton College recently, we were all grateful who had prayed for it, but grievously disappointed that the administration of the college did not understand the principles of revival. So the students were stirred and moved, and hundreds of them stood and confessed most awful sins. But there is a phenomenal difference between the confession of sin and repentance. And many of these poor students who with utter honesty confessed their sins were not brought to repentance. And so months and even years now after the revival, their tragic conviction is revival is worthless. It has no meaning. Some of them have said, I tried that. I went forward. I confessed my sin, and I'm right back now where I was then. I'm saying to you that we ought to give God no rest day or night until he visit us with a word-centered revival in which multitudes of people sit hour after hour under the most urgent preaching of the Word of God. Well, Lord, I've taken all my time and then some. And 
that I have tried to lay in front of my brothers and sisters. The kind of praying that you await. Oh, help us to learn how to pray with importunity for Jesus Christ's sake.